0: On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder, or taught clear His truth. With these waves of confusion and doubt if still by now, it's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church.
1: I have two letters here. Um, In some ways, they're complete opposites of letters. One of them is, typed on on letterhead, kind of a bit more official. One of them is a handwritten on just a note card or a piece from a notepad. Uh, One of them I received about two and a half weeks ago and one of them I received about 19 and a half years ago. So they're really quite different, but there's a lot of similarities between these two letters. One, they were both sent to me first class mail, so that's a good thing with the stamp and all that. Another thing is that they both have information that's pertinent to me and it's important information to me as well. And in both of these letters, they addressed me by name. A little different, on the letterhead, it was Robert Marvel, which it's either from my mom or some official government or, or someone that doesn't know me very well. And the other one is Bob, which is a little more familiar, which most people would call me by that name. And, and so there are some similarities in these two uh, correspondence that I've received. And the greatest similarity is how they start the letter, both of these letters are started exactly the same with the exact same word. Both letters start with dear. Dear Bob, dear Robert, Marvel. Dear is this this heartfelt term of affection, closeness, beloved. And so as I read these letters, it's so nice to hear right out of the gate, that I'm very meaningful to these two people. I am dear to them. One of them, the one that I just received a couple of weeks ago, is is from my cardiologist. (laughs) Now, I haven't met him yet. Uh, We're hanging out this Friday. Have not met him yet, but I'm dear to him. I'm sure that he cannot wait for Friday when we get to hang out, when we finally get to meet. I mean, listen to how he starts this letter. Dear Robert Marvel. So, I mean, he's kind of, it's like, almost like my mom. He starts off with this. He says, I hope you are doing well. He really cares. I mean, he, we're, <laughs> I'm dear to him. I, this heartfelt affection. And, and And he talks about us hanging out Friday. I mean, we're hanging out at his office, but... But we are hanging out on Friday, and he gives me some of those details. And and listen how he ends this letter. We look forward to seeing you. I don't even know who we is. Other people that are dear to him. I I don't know. And then he finishes off with these words. Your partner in health. (laughs) Saddle up, partner. I mean, he didn't really sign it. It's just typed out his name. But man, I'm dear to him. We're gonna hang out. We're gonna be partners in my health. Now, the truth is this, my insurance company is going to pay him handsomely to hang out with me. And if you knew who this individual was, and I'm sure he's a great, great guy, I'll find out Friday, but if you said, hey, Pastor Bob talked about that letter you wrote him, he'd be saying, who's Pastor Bob and what letter? I mean, I know that this came from the scheduling department, I get that. So when he says, dear Robert Marvel, it's more of a formality, it's a a salutation. It's not really that, that we have this tight bond and he just can't wait to hang out with me. But he said, dear, this one, this handwritten one, starts off, dear Bob, similar. But he says this, dear Bob, this next week we will celebrate Father's Day. I'm taking this opportunity to let you know how I feel as a father. First off, I want you to know how extremely proud I am to be Bob Marable's father. And then he writes for two pages, and at the end he says, How blessed I am as a father to have a son like you. I truly love you and your family. It's always a very special time when we are together. Bob, I love you and pray for you, your dad." Now, when dad wrote, Dear Bob, it wasn't a formality. There's a history there. No one is going to pay him when we hang out. He doesn't want to be paid to hang out with me. There's a connection. There's a relationship. There's love, and there is care. See this letter I've held on to for 19 and a half years and this letter will be thrown away after the 11 o'clock service when I no longer need the illustration <laughs> because they've sent me several others and it's on my calendar. One is a formality and one is a deep relationship. So we hear these words, dear church, dear church. And that could be a formality. It it could be from a person or an organization to another organization, just some information exchanged, or it could be something far more deeper, more relational, a a connection. And so we're going to be looking at a letter, that's the, the name of this series, Dear Church. And Paul writes this letter. And as he writes this letter, you begin to understand it's not a formality, but there's something deeper. In fact, in this letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Like there was this relational connection. There's some history there. There's, there's a closeness, and there's a care, and there's love, and there's concern. So who does he write this letter to? Well, in the opening uh, words of this letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, He says this, to the church of God in Corinth. So he writes this letter. And so we're starting this series today called Dear Church. And I want to just say, we're going to be looking in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's it's a letter, but we call it a book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians. I just want to state, this is not a systematic study of the book of 1 Corinthians. If we did that, it would take a very, very long time. There is so much in this book. And as you'll see today, when I just focus on a couple of introductory verses, it would take us a long time to get through the book. So that's not what it is. What it is, is finding some truths that this, that this one who sees them as, like he's their father, they're his children, some truths that he writes to them about, and then how does that apply to us? Now normally, when I plan out a series like this, I plan out it's gonna be six weeks, it's eight weeks, but you know, every single time that I do that, a couple of weeks into it, I'll say, you know, as I've been studying, I'm going to have to extend this series. So I'm just telling you right up front, I'm not really sure how long this series is going to go, but I will commit to this. By Thanksgiving, we will be done, whether we're ready or not, so that we can go into, you know, Christmas with an Advent series. So I am just telling you that we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at that. Today, as we start this series, I want to give you some context, some backdrop, some back story and so for some of you, you're going to love this. Last night, all the, all the teachers and retired teachers said, that was so great. Some of you will love this. Some of you are going, can we get a sermon? Because really, probably the first three quarters or four fifths of this is more teaching than preaching. We'll, get, we'll land the plane. But if you're like, like, I don't need the backstory. I don't need the historical context. I don't need the geographical setting. I don't need the cultural context. If that's you, here, instead of just like surfing your social media, During this first portion of my teaching time, why don't you read Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians 1, and that'll give you your own little backstory. But for the rest of you, it's going to feel a little bit like a history lesson, a little bit like a geography lesson. Are you okay with that today? All right, then let's get into it. So he says to the church of God in Corinth, many of you are aware Corinth was a city in the, in the, uh, the nation of Greece, And Corinth was a very, very important city in the first century. It was probably one of the top five as far as size of cities in the Roman Empire, in the top five. Now, Athens gets all the attention, but Corinth was probably five times bigger than Athens, just popularity-wise, the numbers of people that lived there. And there's not a consensus on this, but there's an estimation that it was between two and 500,000 people lived in Corinth. That, that, that it was kind of this town that, if you look at the Mediterranean, is about the midway point between Jerusalem and Rome. If you want to use some biblical cities, it's about the midway point there in the, meridian, uh, in the Mediterranean uh, in Greece. Now, Greece, I've got a map of Greece just to kind of help you see this. This map of Greece... It shows that, that, uh, you know, Greece is, is landmass and islands. The Greek islands are fantastic if you've ever been there. It's just absolutely spectacular. The waters, azure blue and turquoise, and the hillsides are just dotted with all these whitewashed houses. It's just beautiful, beautiful setting. But the main landmass of Greece itself, Greece proper, is two pieces. One, it's the mainland to the north, and then down below is a thing called the Peloponnese Peninsula. It's that, that section down below there, um, underneath it, in, you know, in the water, but they're not separated. They are connected. Kind of like if you've ever been out to Simiamu Resort, you, know, you go across the spit to get there. I mean, it's just kind of this section of land out there. Or if you've ever been to Samish Island down south, it's not really an island, because there's this land bridge that goes out to it. Well, in a similar way, these two pieces of Greece that kind of almost, well, not really look like a, in theory, they're kind of like an hourglass, but it's as if Picasso drew it because it's really all disjointed. Anyway, they're connected with this little, this little land bridge. And this bridge is called an isthmus, like all I want for Christmas. It's I-S-T-H-M-U-S, isthmus. Why don't you say that? Isthmus. Now, clean the spit off the back of the people in front of you. Okay, this isthmus, and Corinth lies in this isthmus. So we'll get in a little bit closer. I'll show you another map to see how this plays out. That Corinth is there. Now, it looks like it's just a little dot, but remember, you're talking about two to 500,000 people in that isthmus at its, at its tightest point is only three and a half, maybe four miles wide. So it's all through there. It's not just a dot there. It's, that whole area would be uh, considered Corinth. This is a very strategic town and area, especially when it came to commerce. Because if you were shipping anything, any cargo from Asia, or from Africa, from Egypt, or from the near or or even far east, and going towards Rome, and it is the Roman Empire, if you went around the Peloponnese Peninsula, it would take you 200 miles out of the way. But if somehow you could get across this isthmus, it would save you a a massive amount of time, not just time, but maybe your life, because going around the Peloponnese Peninsula was very treacherous and very dangerous. In fact, there are many Proverbs that were talking about, no sailor goes that way twice. They just don't live to, to see the second time. Or if you're going to go around the Peloponnese Peninsula, you better have your, you know, your effects and your matters in order, because you're probably going to die. So any of the, the cargo that was going, the, the trade routes, the, the commerce, would go through. This was like the bottleneck. And shipping companies began to find that if they would bring it in from the the east or from the west, either way, and stop there, they could unload their cargo and have porters and longshoremen and different companies that would transport all of their cargo across the uh, isthmus to a waiting ship, load it on, and then take it on to their destination. So if you got the Aegean uh, Sea and the Iconian Sea, um, uh, and, and then even up into the uh, Adriatic Sea, that, that's the best way to do it. So all commerce bottleneck down to this little uh, piece of property. And if your ship wasn't too large, there was a thing called the Dialkos. Dialkos was this kind of this wooden railway track. They would actually put your ship on rails and push it across those three and a half, four miles over to the other side, and away you go. Now, while all your cargo is being transported or your boat is being transported, you're waiting for all that, the sailors could all go into Corinth and have a little R&R. You begin to understand that if this is the bottleneck of the whole trade route, that the area would be very diverse in the kind of people that were there. All kinds of uh, different ethnicities that would be there. Very cosmopolitan. But it wasn't just this diverse cosmopolitan of all these sailors and longshoremen. Corinth was also a place of athleticism. Because every two years, Corinth would host the Isthmian Games, Uh, which were done in in honor of the god Poseidon. There were athletic and musical competitions. They were second only to the Olympic Games and would happen every two years. So athletes from all over the world would come and converge on that. But it was also not just athletes, but it was artists. There would be musical competitions as well. And Corinth was a place of great culture and art. They had an outdoor performing arena for for plays and for for performances that would seat 18,000 people. And they had a concert hall, an indoor concert hall that could seat 3,000 people. So there's a lot of music, a lot of culture, a lot of art, a lot of these fine arts that were a part of that. And because of all the commerce and all the activity with the athletics and and because of all the the arts, it was a very wealthy city. The idea of being in Corinth was a a place of, of affluence, of luxury, of creature comforts. Let me take some of you back to 1974. 1974, Chrysler had the Cordoba. And their spokesperson for the Chrysler Cordoba was Ricardo Montaban. Any of you remember this one? And as Ricardo Montaban would tell about the glories and the beauties of the Chrysler Cordoba, he would talk about the seats that they were made out of. Rich Corinthian leather. Anyone remember that? The rich Corinthian. Oh I'm buying the Chrysler. It's got the Corinth doesn't have leather. It was just this idea, there was just this sounds so poetic, this wealth and this luxury of the rich Corinthian leather. But the culture, while not known for leather, was known for its luxury, for its for its wealth, for its its creature comforts. It was also a place of great diversity when it came to religion and the Greek and the Roman gods. There were six temples and at least 26 shrines. Temples to, to Apollo and uh, Apollo and to Isis and, and to Hermes and to Poseidon and to Fortuna. But, but the crown jewel was up about 1,900 feet above the city up there on the, uh, it's called the Corinth, up on this hill where they had the, the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility the goddess of love, and it has been reported by some that at one point this temple not only housed but employed 1,000 temple prostitutes to engage in these acts of worship to Aphrodite. So that's kind of the setting. And not only just in that temple, but you think about it. Here's a port port city with these sailors coming in off of their journeys, and there's all of this freedom, and they're away from home, and there's a lot of luxurious, and they've got money to spend. It was a very immoral city as well. In fact, there was this term that was used, a couple of terms. One, I mean, you remember the Valley Girls, and you remember Billy Joel singing Uptown Girls. There was also a term known as a Corinthian girl. A a Corinthian girl, I'll just allow you to just imagine, is probably not the girl you want to take home to meet mom, so there was this, this reputation of Corinthian girls, take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. And then there was this other term, it was a verb, it was called uh, corin- Corinthiazo. It was a verb, it meant to act like a Corinthian and it was not a flattering, it was not a, it, it was not a, 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 a chaste, um, prudent, virtuous title. To act like a Corinthian. I mean, it would be like, you remember when the Red Hot Chili Peppers sang, Californication. That's kind of the reputation that Corinth had. There was this, this lax freedom in their morals or lack thereof. And so you, you have all of these things going on. And so here's this city that's very populous, very large, very cosmopolitan, best diversity of people, a lot of wealth, a lot of freedom, a lot of art, in the midst of all this there's debauchery and idolatry, how in the world would there be a church there? Well I'm so glad you asked, because, and this is for those of you who are checked out a long time ago and reading Acts 18, we'll join them, in Acts chapter 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey, it's about the year AD 50 or so. He's on his second missionary journey. He's been in Athens, and he had nominal success there, but has a great experience on the Areopagus and Mars Hill with all the the deep thinkers, the Stoics, and the Epicureans, and the philosophers. He leaves there, and he goes to Corinth. It appears that he goes to this massive city, this massive city that is filled with idolatry and and debauchery, and doesn't apparently know anybody, but he says, I'm going to go there and take the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. So he comes into Corinth, and he meets this couple. This couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They got booted out of Rome because Claudius the emperor kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. So they came out of Rome and they settled in Corinth. They have a business. They make tents and apparently they've had a help wanted sign out or something, but somehow Paul gets connected with them and he begins to work with them because he can make tents as well. Little side note, they're probably making tents for the Isthmian games, amongst other things, for the vendors that would come in, for the athletes that would come in. So they're making these tents, and Paul works with them, and this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, would not only become friends, would not only become partners in business, but would become partners in the gospel for the rest of his life. So he works with them, making tents six days a week, but on Saturday, he doesn't make tents. This is what it says in in Acts chapter 18, verse 4. Every Sabbath, that's the Saturday, he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and Gentiles. So on Saturday, he would go to the synagogue and there were the Jewish people gathered for Torah study and the God-fearing Greeks who were allowed to come there. And Paul would begin to talk with them and reason with them. They had something in common. Remember, Paul was a, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had been a Pharisee. He knew the scriptures as well or better than anyone in that room. And so he would no doubt begin to talk about how all the prophecies were pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus, how all the Levitical laws were a foreshadowing of what would happen in Jesus, how the whole sacrificial system was just a, a, a glimpse of what Jesus would do on the cross. And no doubt he would tell his own story because throughout Acts, when he times when he's with people, he would tell his own story of how he didn't believe in this Jesus. And then he met him on the road to Damascus and he would just do this. Week after week, trying to help them understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace, the forgiveness, the salvation, the life that they could have away from the law and in fullness of who he is. It wasn't greatly accepted. In fact, it goes so far as to say they not only opposed Paul, but they abused him. Now, whether that was no doubt verbal, if it was beyond that physical, maybe, but Paul says, okay, fine. I part with thee, you know, you guys don't want to hear this, fine, I'm going to take this message to the Gentiles, and there were plenty of Gentiles in Corinth, and so he does, verse 7 out of Acts uh, chapter 18, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door, right next door to the synagogue, next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Now, it's very possible that Titius, who was a Roman citizen, probably a Greek, or at least a Gentile, not Jewish may have been Paul's first convert in Corinth. And he just so happens to have a house right next door to the synagogue. So Paul says, they don't want me at the synagogue. Titus, why don't we do this here? So they would have kind of these discussions about about Jesus and about the law and about the Torah and about the salvation and the grace. And so they do that. Well, now, not all the Jews were completely opposed to Paul. In verse eight, it says Crispus, which is just a cool name. I think it's only half his name. I think he was actually Crispus Cremus, and he made donuts on the side. But regardless, Crispus, he was the synagogue ruler. So he was the one in charge of the synagogue. He and his entire household believed in the Lord. So now you've got Titus Justus, who is not Jewish. He's hosting kind of a, a house church in his home. Crispus, who used to be the leader of the synagogue, he comes over. He's a follower of Jesus, and no doubt if they were opposed to Paul, they would be opposed to Crispus as well. So whether he just like, relinquished his duty, probably he was very much relieved of his duties as the ruler of the synagogue. Little side note, you can kind of file this one away. He was replaced by a guy named Sosthenes. We'll get, come back to Sosthenes later, but he would become the new ruler of the synagogue. So now you have, you have uh, Titius Justus, a, a Greek, a, a Roman citizen. You have Crispus and his whole family. And so you've got the starting of a church plant. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians, so we're talking about a primarily non-Jewish group of people now. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of Greeks, a lot of Romans. Many of the Corinthians who heard him, who heard Paul, believed and were baptized, Which, can I just push pause right now? Last Wednesday night, when we had our baptism here, I'm just telling you, there is nothing better than the baptisms. I mean, it was amazing. And in Skagit, I just wish I could have been in two places at once, because Skagit had, like, I think all their baptisms were middle school and high school students. Here, we had this wide range from a nine-year-old boy to an octogenarian and everywhere in between. It was just fantastic. Well, this is happening here. Many of these Corinthians are hearing the good news of the gospel, and they're getting baptized. So, so, so Paul plants this church in this most unlikely place, and the church is a light in a dark city. It's dark, dark morally, it's dark spiritually, it's dark religiously. He plants this church, and it's a light in a dark city. Now, normally, Paul, on his journeys, would do something like that, leave someone in charge, someone like... Tidius or Crispus, and then he would move on. Not on this one. This one's a little different. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Are we still together here? Okay. i got a couple leaving and sleeping. Enjoy your nap. (laughs) Acts 18, 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because... I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. One more little pause. This is where you see the beautiful heart of our Savior. Here's a city that is so opposed to God in the morals and all the things of Scripture. A a city that is steeped in debauchery, licentiousness, uh, just idolatry, you would think God would just destroy it. God says, no, no, no. It's just like Nineveh in the Old Testament. I'm not done with them. I love them. That's why why I sent my son. And God says, Paul, I've got many people here in this city. So he stays for a year and a half there in Corinth. It's no wonder that there would be this heart of like a father. He's teaching them. He's pouring into them. He's helping them learn the truth about Jesus. He's seeing them come to know Christ. He's seeing them experience the spiritual gifts. He's seeing them rise up in leadership. He just invests in them and he pours his life into them. No wonder they're dear to him. But the Jewish people are still not real happy. And, and I think this is purely speculation on my part. If he's still right next door, meeting at Tidius Justice's house, which is right next door to the synagogue, and many people are just beginning to believe and get baptized, you can imagine what's happening. They're over there in their synagogue with their little handful of people, and they're looking over, and what's going on next door? And all these people are coming in here, and they smell like bacon and pulled pork, and we don't do that, and there's no place to park, and their music is loud and obnoxious. They're not like us. And There's all this probably, what's going on next door, it probably just escalates the whole attitude about this thing. So Sosthenes, I mentioned he's the new uh, leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes decides to take Paul to court to try to get him to stop talking about Jesus, which is exactly what Paul used to do too. He used to get people arrested. He used to persecute them to to try to get them to stop talking about Jesus. Now it's full circle. Now he's the one that's being drug into court. There's a guy named uh, uh, Gallio who is the, the Roman proconsul. Not Galileo, that's 1,500 years later, and it's not in the Bible. But Gallio is the Roman proconsul there. He's in the court, and, uh, and he's Roman, and he does not care about this Jewish stuff at all. So, this is what happens in verse uh, 16. So, he, Gallio, had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern. Whatsoever. You can imagine poor Sosthenes. I mean, he's just trying to stay true to his Jewish heritage. He feels like Paul's a blasphemer, takes him to court. They get thrown out of court, and then he gets the snot kicked out of him right in front of the court, and the judge doesn't care. No one seems to care at all. Well, this church is now beginning to grow and thrive. Many people are believing. Many people are being baptized. And as we, we will see, or maybe we'll have time to see that that the gifts of the Spirit are poured out in abundance. They have great preachers and communicators that are there. Amazing things are happening in this church. And on top of that, this is such an opportunity. This is such a strategic location. Think about this. If all of Asia and, and Egypt and Rome pass through this area in trade, what better way to spread the gospel than to grab these people that are coming through that are transient to hear the good news of the gospel and they go off to their ports afar. It's an incredible opportunity. So after a year and a half, Paul leaves, leaves him in charge with this church that's, that's thriving. It is a spiritual rags to riches story of what's happened in Corinth. Now, fast forward two or three years, Paul is now in Ephesus and the rags to riches spiritual story of the Corinth has now turned around and has gone from riches back to rags. There's some issues. There's some trouble. A little trouble in River City, and Paul gets wind of it. He hears about this. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, um, 11, he writes, My brothers, that's, you know, the church there, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. You say, well, you know, just get them worked out. That's just the tip of the iceberg. It's not just quarrels, a couple little people squabbling over issues. There's division that has come about in this church. In fact, we'll probably look at this next week. There are maybe these groups, these factions that are starting to splinter off and be opposed to each other, causing this division and this unhealth. But that's only the, the part of it. There's also the situation morally That their past lives and their culture is seeping its way back into the church and the the marriages are a mess and the sexual ethic reflects more of the culture than it does of who they are in Christ. And on top of that, their worship experiences are just messed up. People come for communion and they get drunk at communion. People are, 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 are taking sides and, and not letting some people participate. People have spiritual gifts and they have all this pride and they think that they're more spiritual than the rest of them. And there's all this disorder within the, with, with, within the worship services. And all this is going on in this church that had so much potential and was looking so great. And so because of all this, and Paul hears about all of this, he writes them a letter. 1 Corinthians. Now, a little side note too. In our Bibles, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We know that there was at least a third letter, and there was maybe a fourth letter that was written that's alluded to in these books. There were probably at least four letters written, but two of them we have. And the one we're going to be looking at is 1 Corinthians. And some of you are going, love this book. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is our wedding verse. This is going to be great. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13 is great. But he didn't write the letter so they would have something to quote at their weddings. In fact, this letter, it's, it's not theolo- theological. It's, it's more corrective. It's about righting some wrongs. I mean, there's other things that he wrote, like Ephesians, a lot of doctrine and theology. Romans, a lot of doctrine and theology. Not in this one so much. This one is a correctional letter. He addresses at least 11 issues, and 10 of those 11 are behavioral. There's only one theological issue he addresses, and that has to do with the resurrection. We may get to that in November. If we don't, I promise you in April, at Easter, we will. Okay. But he confronts all of these behavioral issues that have gotten them. They, had, they were so doing so good, and yet it's become so horrible. But remember, they're very dear to him. So when he writes, and and as we'll see, he writes some of the strongest words of any of his letters to the Corinthians, but look what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Okay, that's the introduction to my sermon. So if you've been reading Acts 18 and, and 1 Corinthians 1, come on back, come on back. Now we're gonna get started. Are the rest of you still with me? Okay, so let's get into this letter. So we're gonna look in in 1 Corinthians. We're gonna start right at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 1. When we write letters, we end with signing, you know, sincerely Bob Marvel or whatever. And we kind of end with saying who wrote the letter. They would start with that. And this is what we see in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, he starts off just talking about himself. Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I won't get into this a lot, but it will come up later because there's questions about his authority. Who do you think you are, Paul? And he's saying, listen, I'm an apostle of Christ, not because I wanted to be, not because I pursued that. I didn't have this dream of being an apostle of Christ, but I was called and it's by God's will. He appointed me, so he's addressing some, I think some authority on this because he's not just coming up with with his ideas. Now, I, I probably don't have time for this, but this is, to me, one of the coolest little rabbit trails of all. So he he starts off and he says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, I was called by him, and our brother, Sosthenes. Ooh, wait a second, I've heard that name before, Sosthenes. Sosthenes had been the ruler of the synagogue. Now, let's say this, Sosthenes is a unique name to us, it was not to them there were probably many, many men named Sosthenes. This may not be the same person, but what if, what if Sosthenes, who was opposed to Paul and the Christians, who took them to court, who got the stuffing beat out of him and no one cared about him, what if the followers of Jesus decided that they would bless their enemy To love those who persecuted. And what if it was the Christians. Who followed the story of the good Samaritan. That actually picked him up. And nursed him to health. And what if. That kind of unhuman love. Melted his heart. To say there must be something to this Jesus. And what if then. Sosthenes. Was converted and becomes a ministry partner with Paul, the very one he took to court. Now, that's biblical, not biblical. That's speculation. But how cool would that be, huh? I mean, it is kind of an interesting coincidence that Sosthenes, the only place in the Bible, shows up there and there. Anyway, so this Sosthenes, whoever he is, May have been Paul's secretary, may have been a scribe for him, writing it. rarely did Paul write his own letters because of his most believe because of his eyesight. But he goes on and he addresses who this is written to. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So there's these differentiation. You're in Corinth and you're sanctified in Christ. It's like he gives them a a physical address, a geographical address, and a spiritual address. Yes, physically, you live in Corinth, but spiritually, you're alive in Christ. That's the case. You're here in Corinth, no doubt, but your real life is in Jesus. And there is that, that, that beautiful picture of, of having our surrounding culture, but a, a greater loyalty. And he says, and you're sanctified into Christ Jesus. Now, sanctification, big word, that's that ongoing transformational process that the Holy Spirit works within us. But in this context, it's not just that ongoing process. It's something that happened, that changed, something that was originally meant for profane purposes and somehow transformed to be a God-honoring purpose. Let me illustrate that. In the early 80s, I was going to college in Portland, Oregon. During those years, an individual came to our region. His name was Bhagwan Raj, Raj, Rajneesh, Sri Rajneesh. Remember the Rajneesh's, okay. It's this whole following, this cult following. They go off into Antelope, this little place out in central Oregon. And uh, they, they set up this commune, this big city. They've up all these acres and there's Rajneesh Puram. And it was all the, all the rage, it was on the news all the time. And it was really quite deplorable what would take place in this, what became, in essence, a sex cult. Very deplorable. Very uh, filled with, again, that word, debauchery and immorality. That was set up for a profane purpose. But over time, things changed. And what was at once Rajneesh Puran is now... Washington Family Ranch, a Young Life Ranch, where thousands and thousands of middle school and high school students hear about Jesus every single summer. See, something that was so profane has been turned around by God's good grace and become very, very beautiful and holy. And he says to these Corinthians, listen, this was your life, the kind of life that you lived, but you've been sanctified, you've been turned around for God's purposes, to glorify him, to honor him. It's kind of this whole being in and being of. You're, you're in Corinth, but you're of Christ. You know, we talk about we're in the world, but not of the world, and that comes from Jesus' words. We'll look at it in a second. But he says, you're in Corinth. We understand that. It's a dark place. But you're not of Corinth. You're of Christ. Jesus would say it this way in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that's exactly what has happened to these followers of Jesus. They've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been taken out of the world. They're, they're in the world, but they are of Christ. And he doesn't stop there. It's not just you've had this salvation experience. He says this. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be Holy. Now, some of your translations will say called to be saints. And we are like, because like, eh, in our mind, saints are like that's when the Catholic Church canonizes somebody and then they, they've got sainthood or whatever. No, the whole concept of, of being a saint or being holy is that idea of, of being called out and set apart for God's purposes. Uh, let, me, let me say it this way, illustrate it this way. When our girls were young, during Girl Scout cookie days, we would buy Girl Scout cookies. Tagalongs, come on. Little Reese's peanut butter cup wannabes with a little cookie in there. Thin mints, not bad. Little peppermint patty wannabe with a little cookie in there. But Samoas? Can I get an amen? If you ever question the goodness of God, buy yourself a box of Samoas. Chocolate, caramel, coconut, the crispy cookie. So we would buy these, these boxes of cookies and I would buy several boxes of each, but I would buy one extra box of Samoas and they would go in the freezer with the word dads on them. Now we would make it very clear to our girls, of all the Girl Scout cookies you may eat freely, but the day you eat dad's Samoas is the day you shall surely die. Because those were set apart for my good pleasure, for my purposes. I purchased them for me. And what he's saying is, listen, you have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and you are set apart for God's good pleasure, for God's purposes, and you are the saints. And he goes on at the end of verse two, together with all those everywhere, who call in the name of our Lord Jesus. Can we just stop there? All those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus, you know who that would include? Us. And while this is written to a church 2000 years ago, there are principles that apply to us this is us. You could just change out the name to the Church of God in Bellingham to those who are called to be saints, to the Church of God in Mount Vernon, to those to the Church of God online, those who are called to be saints. This is for us as well. And you say, well wait a second, I'm not a saint, I'm not a saint. Listen. If you understand what the Bible says about saints and you're in Jesus Christ, positionally you are a saint. No amens there. (laughs) Behaviorally, not yet, but positionally, you are a saint. You are a saint. Saint Emma, you are a saint. Saint Steve, you are a saint. Saint Jonathan, you are a saint. Saint Claudia, you are a saint. You are set apart for his good pleasure in his purposes. Now, it's not because they're so holy, because they're not. They're a mess. Um, i well just think I'm way out of time. Um, nine times in the first nine verses, he keeps pointing back to why he can say this about them. It has nothing to do with them and everything to do with Jesus Christ. Nine times. He says, you're sanctified in Christ, you're called in Christ, you're graced in Christ, you're enriched in Christ, you're gifted in Christ, you're kept in Christ, you're blameless in Christ. It's all about what Jesus has done and will do and is doing. And let's wrap this up. At the end of this little section, in verse, uh, verse eight, he says, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, start, you were sanctified in Christ and he is gonna make sure that at the end of it all, you're blameless. And what this whole whole letter is about is, in the meantime, in the meantime, live faithfully. Live faithfully. As he would conclude in verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Thanks for hanging with me today, but let me land it this way. We live in Corinth, our own Corinth, but we are of Christ. We have been transformed by Jesus. Jesus will make us blameless on the last day. In the meantime, we are called to live faithfully. Paul would write to another church, the church in Ephesus, these words, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Your calling is in Christ. Your standing is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Your life is in Christ. You're in Corinth, but you're of Christ. So what would it look like? What would it take for us, you, me, to look less like Corinth and more like Christ? in our lives, in our attitudes, in our relationships, in our values, in our morals, in our worldviews, in our sexual ethic? What does it look like for us to look more like Christ and less like Corinth?